0: I'm so glad you're here with us. Um, it's a joy to be in the Lord's house this morning. Uh, we are in our final week of our Advent series as we look uh, through what uh, the prophet Isaiah, who is considered by many to be the Christmas prophet, uh, the one whom uh, whenever we are uh, at Christmas programs, uh, watching Christmas movies, a lot of times you'll hear verses from Isaiah quoted uh, in those movies and uh, we have been walking through the book of Isaiah to see how um, Old Testament Israel and the people of God uh, looked forward to the first Advent as we are uh, looking forward to our second Advent. So we have the privilege of being on this side of Christ's first coming, but still uh, we, we kind of keep an eye on that first coming at Christmas morn while also casting a wishful eye uh, to the morning or, or the day of his return. And then uh, looking to Israel to find how do we live uh, in that tension? How do we live knowing that Christ is coming back? How does that inform uh, what we do um, every week? What does that inform how we live our lives every day? How does that inform uh, even our relationship with Jesus himself? Uh, and so uh, theologian Chad Bird says that Advent is the season of the church's flat tire. Uh, Fleming Rutledge says it's the midnight of the church, that it's a time that we intentionally slow down uh, as the rest of the world is kind of careening toward Christmas morning. We are getting there slowly, uh, looking to see what uh, the Lord has for us and trying not to miss uh, some of the beauty that lies within. Um, And so we understand just as Isaiah had to tell Israel, uh, we have to tell you that uh, it won't always be this way, uh, that there is... Uh, A darkness that sin and shame kind of corrode uh, everything in their blast radius. But as Isaiah is promising here uh, in chapter 65 where we'll find ourselves, uh, there is coming a day when that will be no longer. Uh, So Isaiah 65 is really the first peek into what the culture of his coming kingdom will be, this kingdom where uh, everything that is sad will come untrue, this kingdom where uh, all the hurts and all the sadness and all the death uh, and all that will be reversed. And so we'll see three things in this passage. We're gonna look at love revealed. We'll look at the curse reversed and kingdom reimagined. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, Isaiah 65 is where we'll be. Uh, we're gonna start with verse 17 and go through the end of the chapter uh, to verse 25. So let's give our attention this morning to the reading of God's holy word from Isaiah 65. This is the word of the Lord. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are still yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, you are so very kind to us Uh, to give us a glimpse uh, of what awaits us on the other side of our suffering, to give us a glimpse of what awaits us uh, at the moment that you decide to return uh, when you get the order from your father uh, to come and get your bride. So Lord, uh, we ask even now that you would hasten the day of that return, uh, that you would uh, come and get your people. Uh, and Lord, in the, mean, in the meantime, uh, while we await that day, as we look at your first coming uh, with an eye to your second coming, would you give us grace and mercy uh, to go through the suffering well uh, as we are here. And we'll do this Um, because of your grace to us. We'll do this because of the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, We can leave here rejoicing uh, because of all that you've done. In your name we do pray, amen. Uh, So as I said, we'll see three things. We'll see love revealed, the curse reversed, and a kingdom reimagined. So let's walk through this new kingdom together looking at verses uh, 17 through 19, if we can get those up on the screen. Uh, Let us not forget, uh, however, as a little background context for you, Uh, All that Israel has been through, as we spoke of last week in the chapter of Isaiah, that they are in a dark darkness, Uh, darker uh, than you can imagine, death, shadow, darkness, Isaiah says. Uh, Their disobedience, Israel's disobedience to the laws of God, Uh, they had made uh, idols for themselves, they have worshipped false idols, they had made uh, treaties with the surrounding nations to keep them safe instead of relying on the Lord uh, to be their protector, uh, and because of this great disobedience, this great affront uh, to the person of God, he had told them, uh, I'm going to have to exact judgment on you. And it's going to come through Assyria and it's going to come through Babylon later. It's going to, there's this great uh, judgment that's coming your way uh, because God is a God of justice. Um, he has to deal with Israel's sin. Uh, he doesn't go against his character. Um, and so he is a God of justice. So he has to deal with the sin that Israel has thrust themselves into. And at the same time, he is a God of mercy. Uh, he's the only being who can hold justice and mercy perfectly in his hands. Uh, it's a tension for us. For God, it's perfect and it's done well. So he says, as I'm bringing this judgment to you, I'm also bringing you this great mercy to let you know uh, that, there, that the consequences of your sin are only temporal uh, and that God will make a way for you. Uh, Israel, your kingdom's going to be wiped out. The Assyrians are going to come and they're going to take everything from you. They're going to live in your houses. They're going to eat your food. They're going to take you away into exile. All those things are going to happen for you. But, Israel, I want you to know that's not always going to be that way. I want you to know that Assyria doesn't get the last laugh. I want you to remember, Israel, that as Psalm chapter 2 says, the one who sits on the throne of heaven laughs at earthly rebellion. God is gonna use Assyria to carry out his justice, but he never favored Assyria. He always favored Israel. They were always his people. And he's saying to Israel, I'm gonna create something new for you. What Assyria has come in and destroyed, you're gonna find, I'm gonna renew the earth. I'm gonna make it new for you. And he says, the former things you knew won't even come to mind See that in verse 17, Isaiah says, the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. They will forget about uh, the great uh, chaos that took place, the great devastation. Uh, Because it's gonna be so great for them, they're gonna look back at that time and say, even though that happened, this is so much better. And they're even gonna look back on their history as a nation and, and the great flourishing they had under King David and under King Solomon And Isaiah is saying, what is coming for you as a nation, as a kingdom, is even far greater than that. It will be like monopoly money compared to this new kingdom that I'm bringing forth. And the marker of this new kingdom, he is telling us, is his unfailing love for his people. See this in verse 18. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. What's going to mark this new kingdom, the defining characteristic, even of God himself, is the love that he has for his people. We know that this is repeated in Scripture over and over, that God is love, as we are told. Of all the attributes he possesses, of all his power and his majesty uh, and his, infinit- his infinitude, if that's a word, his sovereignty, still we're told what he is known by is his love for his people, infinite. Love for his people. Infinite love that he has had within the Trinity from before time began, and a love that he has had for his people as he created him. And God in his word even goes so far to say, This is your greatest desire. In Proverbs uh, chapter 16, verse 22, we're told, The greatest desire of every human heart is unfailing love, and it's better to be a poor man than a liar. That your greatest desire, Christian, your greatest desire Midtown, your greatest desire Israel is to have someone delight in you, to have someone delight in you and not just someone, the God of the universe and not just the God of this ethereal, esoteric, like hippie universe. We're talking about the God of scripture. As God is presented in the Old and New Testaments, your greatest desire, your heart's greatest longing is to know that he desires you and that he delights in you. And that the unfailing love that he holds out and the unfailing love that he promises is what your heart is chasing. It's what drives you. It's what gets you up in the morning. It's what drives your addictions. It's what drives your sin. It's what drives your shame. Everything you want in this life is fueled by this desire that you have for unfailing love. That what you desire more than anything else is to have a love that does not fail you. As we have said each week of Advent, if you wanna know You can't know what hope is until you stare despair in the face. Uh, You can't know what joy is until you stared sadness in the face. You can't know what uh, peace is until you stared chaos right in the face. You can't know what unfailing love is until you've looked at all those things that have failed you and seen how they have failed you that you can't know what unfailing love is until you look back at everything in your life, everything that makes you tick and see that all those things are, are gonna fail you, to have someone love you in a way that makes the sin and the shame that you know is there melt away. To be loved in such a way that the prodigal suspicion of our hearts goes away. If you know the story of the prodigal son who uh, takes his father's money and goes away to a far off country and as he is coming back because he's broke, and he's hungry, he's just reciting a speech over and over and over again. If I can just be like one of my dad's hired men. I don't even have to move back into the house. Like, just give me a job, give me a paycheck. I'll pay rent out in town. I don't even have to be a part of your family. Just let me come back because I'm hungry. And still worry that the father wasn't gonna take him back. That's what also drives our life. You don't really love me because you haven't seen what I'm capable of that there is a sin and a shame that lies deep within me that when you tell me that you love me, I find it hard to believe you. That's the prodigal suspicion that we wonder, when is the other shoe gonna drop? When will you leave me like everyone else has before? Where's the line to which your love either turns into pity or your love runs out altogether? We know this to be true about ourselves because this is how we love other people. God is saying the greatest desire of the human heart is unfailing love. And we desire this, but it also terrifies us. So Tim Keller says about love, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. It fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. Isaiah is saying to the people here, unfailing love is what's gonna mark this kingdom. He's not gonna let you down. He's not gonna forget his promises that he's made to you. And you will dwell in a holy city with him again that never again do you have to wonder, do I belong? Never again do you have to wonder, do I have a place that that we have a home that we no longer have to live as orphans, but instead get to live in the city that he is making for us and which he rejoices over us. But here's what we know about this. Here's what we know about how it applies to us, is that God, when he brings this new kingdom in, which he's already doing, it means that your kingdom has to be put aside. That when Assyria comes in, when Babylon comes in, when every other enemy of God comes in and tries to take out the people of God, God then comes back and wipes them out. God will not stand to have an enemy against him. And so in our own hearts, when we're, when we're fashioning a kingdom that makes us feel safe, this counterfeit kingdom, aside from what God is making for us, fashioned on what we want instead of what God tells us that we need, God is saying when this new kingdom comes, your kingdom's gonna be wiped out, which is hard for us because we've been hurt. It's hard for us because we know uh, what sin is. We know the evil of the world. But as the Proverbs said, the greatest desire of every human heart is unfailing love. It's better to be a poor man than a liar. What scripture is saying to you is that it's better for you to be begging for table scraps and to be living on the street and sleeping under a newspaper than for you to deny that everything within you wants this to be true about you. Everything within you wants unfailing love, to be rejoiced over because of just who you are, not because of what you do, to be rejoiced over not because you hit uh, the end of the year numbers, but you rejoiced over just for simply being who you are. This is what the Bible is holding out for us. This is what this new kingdom holds out for us, the self-glorification that our heart Laps up like a cat drinking out of a saucer of milk. This is what our hearts are saying. I want the love that God promises me. I just don't want it. I want it, but I don't want it. It's too hard. There's a tension there that lies within us because it makes us feel unsafe, that we trust ourselves more as we can build our own kingdom. The security we gain from giving our, our, our allegiances over to things that are less wild than Jesus, Jesus is saying, that won't do in my kingdom. That if you think that your, your righteousness before me stands on what you've done, that doesn't work in my kingdom. Love revealed to us in the person and the work of this new king, and not only is love revealed to us, we see that a curse is being reversed, which is our second point this morning. If we look at verses 20 through 23, 23. The reality of this new kingdom what flows out of the uh the dna of being in a kingdom where unfailing love is what marks it what flows from those headwaters of this conquering king is a kingdom where evil is banished it reverses the curses that were handed out in genesis chapter 3 There were curses that were levied against mankind. There were curses levied against the devil. Uh, Some of the curses levied against mankind is that childbirth is gonna be hard for you. Adam and Eve, you're gonna fight. You're gonna have some family strife and your work is gonna be difficult. You've probably experienced one of those. That your work is gonna be really hard and that your family relationships are gonna be tough. Tough. And you're going to be separated from Jesus. You're going to be separated from God. You're going to be cast out uh, of his image because we can't have holiness and rebellion dwelling together. And this new kingdom that's coming reverses those curses. Uh, Remember how death entered the world, how um, whenever Satan tempts Eve and she falls and Adam staying there with her, falls as well. And then death enters into the world. The first thing that Isaiah tells Israel about this new kingdom is no longer, in verse 20, shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. If you've lost a child, then you know what this feels like. I would venture to say you don't have to lose a child to at least relate to this because you know that when there's a casket that can fit on this table, you're gonna look at that and say, that's not right. That there's something wrong with this world. Your anger is gonna burn within you. When Job, his children were taken from him, he said, the arrows of the almighty have pierced my heart and my soul drinks their poison. That his heart was ripped from his chest and everything in scripture is intentional. And this is so intentional. Because we know what it's like to look over a casket of someone that we think was taken too early and to say, this isn't right. We know that Jesus himself, when he goes to visit Mary and Martha, when he hears word that Lazarus has died and he gets there and they blame Jesus saying, if only you had come earlier, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus goes to the graves of Lazarus and he stands there and he weeps. He cries. But he doesn't just cry, The way we translate that is we know that there is a guttural response deep down in the gut of Jesus that he is so angry at what death has done to his friend and what death has done to this world, what sin has done, he's so angry that it moves him to tears and he's not gonna leave that graveside without staring down to the abyss of death and saying, Lazarus, come forth and telling the other people to unwrap him and let him go. Death has no place in the new kingdom. If you've known someone who has died too early, if you've known someone who has, uh, who has lost a child, if you know someone who has lost a family member, the new kingdom promised to you is that Jesus Christ, when he returns, will stand at the edge of the grave of that loved one that you know, and he will say, rise up and come forth, that resurrection and life will be the marker of this new kingdom and not death that we are so used to that it's been defeated because Jesus was the one who walked through it and came out on the other side, that death has no business in this kingdom. And then he goes on to say that, and if we look at verse 22, I think, that they shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of the tree shall my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And in verse 23, they shall not labor in vain. So death is going to disappear. And the second thing that happens is your work is going to make sense. Which kind of sucks because that means we have to work in heaven. Or you will. I don't think I'll have a job. (laughs) I'm not sure there's much need for preachers. Um, So if anybody's hiring, let me know. Um, What he's saying is work being a pre-fall mandate means that work, although it is now cursed because of the thorns and thistles that come from the fall, that work was never intended to be a curse. Uh, That it was intended to be a delight, that it was intended to be how we join with Jesus in creating things for the world. And Isaiah goes on to say, you won't labor in vain any longer. That you'll still work, but the thorns and the thistles of our job are not gonna be there. This means you won't be defined by what you do any longer. This means that when you meet someone and you tell them your name, the very next thing you have to tell them is what you do. This means you won't be defined by your job any longer. That your work will be a delight, but it won't be your chief identity. Work won't be an idol for you anymore. That you won't feel like you can't close the laptop. You won't ever feel like you can't rest in order to make the deadline any longer. There won't be any work left to define you because the work that truly defines you has already been done. The work of Jesus on your behalf through what theologians call his active obedience, meaning his strict adherence to the laws of God, that he he kept every jot and tittle, that he dotted every I and that he crossed every T and that there was nothing left to be done. That Jesus fulfilled that for us and therefore we can work to the delight of the Lord and not to get people's affection. And it wasn't enough that Jesus just did the act of obedience. That would have been great. It would have brought us back to zero. But he's saying, even in his passive obedience for you, that he went to the cross as a a lamb was silent before its shearers, Jesus and his work on the cross secured this new kingdom for you. For all who would place their trust in him, there will be no more thorns or thistles to fight against in this new kingdom because he bore the thorns for us on the cross. And now we can walk into freedom and to our vocations because of all that has been earned for us, has already been earned by Jesus and credited to us through his death and his burial and his resurrection. That's what marks this new kingdom. There won't be death anymore. Your work will be a delight. I don't have time to talk about family. Just know it's, it won't suck forever. We're gonna go to our last point. I'm running out of time. Uh, lastly we see a kingdom reimagined if if our greatest desire is for unfailing love then all those things that the kingdom promises no more family strife no more death no more uh, painful work that will delight in our jobs all those great promises of the coming kingdom as great as they are is still not the point of heaven if our greatest desire is for unfailing love, it's better to be a poor man than a liar, then the definition of the kingdom is that heaven is heavenly because Jesus is there. Heaven is heavenly because Jesus is there. It's not just that we don't suffer anymore, which is great. It's that we are there with the one who makes sense of our suffering. We're there with the one who has pursued us, as verse 24 says, before they call, I will answer And while they are yet speaking, I will hear that Jesus is still gonna pursue you in the new heavens and the new earth. That God will never stop pursuing you. What a promise that is. This great hound of heaven, as he is called, is going to continually go after his people even when, I would almost say exclusively when, they aren't looking for him. Because isn't this what makes Christmas wonderful and wild all at the same time? That it was such an affront to our world because Jesus is saying, it's so bad that I'm going to go down there and get you and I'm going to live amongst you and I'm going to buy you back. That the promise of Christmas is is that Jesus is coming to surprise a world that has been lulled into boredom. The promise of the second coming is that Jesus comes and breaks our boredom because Jesus always has to surprise us to get our attention. Because when we look at what this new kingdom is bringing, Isaiah is saying, here's what the king is gonna do, and I want you to anticipate this. So that when you see it, you're you're not surprised by it. When you see it, you know, this is actually the kingdom breaking through. Probably the second weirdest thing about me is that I, I, I like watching videos on how to communicate well. It might not be that weird, it's kind of my job. So don't judge me, self. Um, and so I think the greatest form of communication is stand-up comedy. Uh, I think it's the hardest thing to do. Um, and when it's done well, it's unbelievable. When it's done poorly, you know it. Um, and a couple weeks ago, I went to Zaney's. It's the first time I've been there in years. My sister-in-law, uh, bought some tickets for my wife and I to go see a guy named Dusty Slay, um, and we, and he's he's super funny, but when we got there, we realized that it was just a showcase. Like he was hosting a night for like up and coming comedians. I was like, oh, this is gonna be lame. Like I came to hear this guy, and now I gotta hear these bozos. Um, and some of them were good, some of them were terrible. Uh, and so we're just sitting there, and I like I look at my wife, and I'm like, I'm getting kind of bored. Um, this two drink minimum isn't doing it for me. Like I'm I'm getting I'm just kind of like this is kind of lame. Um, and then Dusty Slay goes on the stage and he says, my next comedian uh, is the host of the Nate Lamb podcast, ladies and gentlemen, Nate Bargatze. And I was like, wait, what? Like I almost took my shirt off. I was so excited. It was unbelievable because he's my like, I think he does it better than anybody. And I was like, holy smokes, like we just paid $20 to go see this guy. And uh, so excited to see how the room changed, the posture of everyone in there changed. They knew that this guy was good. And this guy wasn't gonna disappoint us. This guy was gonna make us laugh. This guy was gonna let us get our money's worth. And when the new kingdom comes, when we look at what Jesus is doing, as Jesus is the coming king who is coming to break the boredom that has lulled us to sleep. Isaiah is saying, you can anticipate that this king is gonna do it right. You can lay down your own kingdoms. You can look and see and reimagine with me a kingdom that we get to build alongside of him because that's the beauty of the first advent that when Jesus touched down for just 33 years as he lived among us, he told us, I'm building something and I'm gonna let you build it with me. And I'm gonna leave, but I'm gonna leave the Holy Spirit who's gonna come and he's gonna fill your hearts, who's gonna come and be a comfort for you. And you're gonna see that in the cracks of all that sin has done, that light's gonna shine through. Just like in these last, what feels like 10 months of gray in this dumb city, Where there's not been a single drop of sunshine. And then on uh, yesterday, when the sun is peeking through, we can see that the kingdom is breaking through in the same way. And all that sin has made gray, his goodness and his beauty are bringing sunshine to all those places. And he's saying it starts here, it's gathering with God's people. It's watching what he does. It's building together a kingdom that is advancing on this earth, reading his words, singing his praises, and leaving here to proclaim it to the world that sits out there. He says, I've left you, but I'm coming back for you. And while I'm gone, I want you to build this kingdom in anticipation of my return. That we can, as Kurt Thompson says, place ourselves in the path of oncoming beauty that we can look and see that while we still suffer, while this sad reality of suffering is true for us, that we can remember that Jesus is on his way back, that Jesus is on the move, as C.S. Lewis said in his Chronicles of Narnia series, which I haven't read, but I quote, because I'm a pastor. (laughs) That Christ is on the move, that the snow is melting, that everything that is sad is coming untrue. I think it's from another book. But everything we know about Jesus and how he acts and how he moves within this world is coming back to say, death will be no more. Your work won't be as hard anymore. And all that's gonna be true. But the greatest thing about what's happening is that I will be with you. And we will dwell together. That the greatest desire of every human heart is unfailing love. And it's better to be a poor man than a liar. Let's pray together. Jesus, in your mercy and in your kindness and uh, your goodness to us, uh, we are so undone. Uh, we are so um, confused by a love like this. Um, we're so saddened that we've not known love this way. And yet, uh, you hold out for us a guarantee. Uh, a guarantee sealed in your death and your burial and your resurrection and your promise to return again. Uh, that it will not always be this way. Uh, that you love your people too much to let them wallow in darkness. And in darkness has shown a great light. Lord, all the Advent images that we've been using, the shoot coming forth from the stump, the new kingdom coming forth to lay waste to the old one. Uh, Jesus, would you make that so real to our hearts that it's undeniable uh, that you are who you are. Lord, start a revival within us. Start a revival in this city. Uh, Let it it be known that Midtown 12 South is full of those people who can't stop talking about Jesus. So Lord, would you do this for us? As we march into a week of Christmas uh, celebration and Christmas disappointment, remind us that you have not forgotten us. And in your name we do pray, amen.